So we used to think it was just a disease of mechanics. And we thought that it wasn't inflammatory because uh, there were no neutrophils in the synovium or in the, in the synovial fluid or in the synovial membranes. We thought it was just uh, bad biomechanics. So uh, that's not how we think about it anymore. It's much more than that. Um, although certainly bad biomechanics plays a role. Uh, but there's lots of things that play a role. Uh, obesity, which changes mechanics, and that's a huge problem across the world. Um, uh, inactivity, stillness is, turns out to be really bad for you. Uh, overactivity can be bad. Um, we don't work people to death anymore in this country, uh, but I'm sure there are countries where people get worked to death. Trauma, uh, particularly as if it crosses a joint or tears a tendon, where you lose the biomechanical integrity. Um, poor nutrition. I mean, this is, uh, you know, as living organisms, we have to put in the things that help us rebuild our bodies because we're always tearing it down. For instance, bone turns over completely every 10 years. You know, it's not just your hair grows and you cut it off. Your skin turns over every month, your bones every 10 years. So if you don't nourish those cells so they can eat while you're uh, sitting still, uh, your joints aren't going to last. Welcome to another episode of the Capital Integrative Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Wong, and today we're bringing you a great conversation with Dr. Carla Guggenheim, a board-certified rheumatologist, Southern Indian dancer, Laban movement analyst, and scientist. This conversation is about root causes of osteoarthritis, which we know affects millions of people worldwide, and Dr. Guggenheim's personal health journey. Osteoarthritis is a prevalent and debilitating condition that affects millions of people worldwide that causes joint pain, stiffness, and reduced mobility and quality of life. In this episode, we'll delve into the complexity of, osteo of osteoarthritis, exploring its underlying causes and innovative treatment approaches. Dr. Carla Guggenheim brings a wealth of experience and a compassionate approach to the conversation. Whether you're personally affected by osteoarthritis or interested in learning more about this prevalent condition, Please join us for a thought-provoking discussion with Dr. Carla on osteoarthritis and the holistic path to improve joint health. Welcome, Dr. Carla, to the podcast. Thanks so much for coming on today. Oh, you're welcome. It's good to be here. Thank you. So, uh, so Dr. Carla Guggenheim, a functional medicine practitioner, um, and, and an expert in osteoarthritis, which is what we'll talk about today. But before we do that, we'd like to just kind of start by, uh, if you could tell our listeners a bit about what drew you to become a doctor and then a, a functional medicine practitioner, and what do you enjoy most about what you do? Oh, wow. Um, I uh, come from a very dysfunctional drug-addicted family, and um, I, I danced. They, my mother dropped me off at the dance school. So dancing was my life and all I ever wanted to be was ballerina. And, uh, and, I, and I'm a third generation physician. 
but I never, never expected to do medicine. Never wanted to. I did help my dad back in his office uh, back in the day when a 12-year-old could go into an ENT office and set up Pretz tea treatments and plate Petri dishes with snot and run the <laughs> autoclave. And I did eye testing and I did hearing testing in his office as a tween and a teen. Did, did he pay you or? No. Did, uh... Yeah. No, I was just helping dad. Helping out, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, dot, dot, dot. I, uh, was the, uh, I was the San Francisco Ballet when I was 16. And, and I really, uh, they told me I could have a scholarship for the year. I was going to drop out of high school. And so I called my parents up. I said, I'm dropping out of high school. I'm uh, going to stay at the San Francisco Ballet. And they said, how will you pay rent? And I said, we, you will send me money. And they said, no, <laughs> that's why I graduated from high school. I wasn't, but my contract weight is 110 and I was five foot four and a half. I mean, not 110. My contract weight was a hundred and I was five, four and a half. So, and I was solid muscle and I, uh, so I never really had anorexia. I was hungry, but I didn't eat. Whatever. I really liked San Francisco. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, then uh, after high school, I, I married really poorly. And, uh, and that was brief. And then I started studying it. I went to New York to seek my fame and fortune, which didn't exactly work out, but I met... Uh, a dance style called Bharatanatyam, which is from South India, and just fell in love with it. I started doing Bharatanatyam in 1971 or 72. And um, that was that was just really fun. I studied art and architecture at NYU. I studied aesthetics at Columbia Barnard. I mean, it was I was like in a candy store. It was so fun. I'm not sure why. I mean, that's not my heritage, but I I love it. I it's not cultural appropriation. It's cultural love. I'm in love with South India. So, uh, and then um, I, uh, I, you know, at a certain point, like, you know, you got to get a job. So like a real job. Uh, I, I also did dance notation, but I, so I got a job teaching dance and dance history at Sonoma State in California and uh, married again, again, disastrously, but briefly. And I took, science courses uh, in the mornings because I didn't have enough to do and I liked science. And I uh, I got a degree and uh, uh, when my marriage fell apart, I went to a friend of mine in the chemistry department. I said, I don't know what to do with my life. And he goes, well, you have A's in all the pre-meds classes. Why don't you go to med school? I mean, I'd taken all kinds of embryology, calculus, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I was pretty depressed and I thought, well, that sounds like a good idea. <clears throat> and I applied and got in. So. And the rest is history. So just. Yeah, the rest yeah. is history. But I, uh, yeah. I went to a DO school and um, I kind of got through DO school and I thought, you know, I don't know how much I like this, you know? So I had decided uh, to do a really wonderful program at Michigan State University here <clears throat> that, that combined manual medicine <coughs> with um, 
a master's degree in bioengineering, and I really like bioengineering. So, so I uh, I worked. Uh, so in the middle of my rotating internship, that program died and went to heaven, and I had to do something else. So I I did internal medicine because they were the nicest, smartest people in town. That's how I picked it. And I think when you're picking residencies, you shouldn't go, oh, I'm going to be a neurosurgeon and make a lot of whatever. You know, you should pick it with people that you like and the kind of life you want to have. Like, you know, do you like short stories work in the ER? Do you like long stories? <laughs> go into rheumatology. So, Well, um, I'm an internal medicine doctor, so I feel like a piece of buttered bread now. But thank you. Thank you for... Uh... <laughs> Talking yeah, up uh, internal medicine, yeah. Yeah, my uh yeah, my view of medicine's changed pretty drastically. Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of curious how you have combined. I mean, we can get into this here on our podcast episode today with you, Carla, but how you've combined your love of South Indian dance. And I know you have the, the Taj Mahal of, of books behind you, the collection of uh, dance books with medicine. You know, how how do you combine those? those two, you know, passions of yours? Well, one of my, uh, one of my colleagues at the University of Iowa, I, I used to go all over uh, Eastern Iowa doing outreach clinics in rheumatology, and he was Indian, and he came to one of my performances that we did in this little town that he was in, and he said, I get it. Medicine's your hobby. Yeah, that's 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 very perceptive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, "You're just doing this." I said, "Pretty much." I mean, although I do, I do like, I did like rheumatology. I I like rheumatology. Part and part of the reason I liked rheumatology was because I thought, you know, most of these. This is total in my ignorance as an internist. Most of these diseases are self-imposed. Like I got done with internal medicine residency, you know, people smoked, drank, ate crap, were massively overweight and sat around and watched TV. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going to, I'm going to see these people all day long. And, and that was, that, that was before Netflix, right? And now, now yeah. you can binge watch stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. And I thought I'm, I'm going to give these people drugs for this. For self-imposed, yeah, or lifestyle, basically lifestyle issues lifestyle that could be reversed with lifestyle change, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, I just don't see this. So I went to my director, who was wonderful. I said, Pat, I can't do this. I just, I can't do this. I don't know what to do. I'd finished the work for my master's degree in bioengineering, uh, but he said, well, why don't you apply to rheumatology, and they'd probably support your research. So I went, whoa, that's great. So that's what I did. And I went to the University of Iowa and did, uh, I, I did uh, um, rheumatology at the University of Iowa. And fortunately, there was an incredible artist who lived two doors away from me from South India, who was amazing. So I danced. I thought, I'm going to Iowa. And, you know. <laughs> So I, I also reconstruct French Baroque dance manuscripts. And I, uh, I love French Baroque dance, although it comes out of a horrible culture of Louis XIV. But anyway, uh, I, um, 
I, I danced with the Baroque orchestra. So like on the weekends, I was dancing with the Baroque orchestra, going, So cool. Yeah, bringing, so you're practicing medicine, you're doing dance as well, dancing. yeah. And and then how did you get into functional medicine or how what was the entry there? My daughter went to naturopathic school in 2003. Uh, was that Portland or? Yeah, she went to the Portland school. Yeah. She, uh, she went to the Portland school and she'd gone to read and they don't have great inflation and she couldn't. Anyway, she was very drawn to, to naturopathic medicine. Uh, and so she went there and she would come back to Michigan for vacations and visits and whatever and hang out in the clinic and, you know, very perceptive. She would say, you know, mom, I... I don't think your patients really understand what you tell them. You're using, you know, your words are too big. I said, well, why don't you study it? Why don't you sit down with patients? I always gave them a copy of their note. This is before, you know, EMRs were EMR, around. yeah. Mm -hmm. So I give them a copy of your note. So she would take them in a room and say, what did Dr. Guggenheim tell you you had? And, uh They say, I don't know, what medicines did she put you on? Uh, how are you know what? And oh, I, I and she'd say, well, you can look at your note and read it. Oh, I forgot my glasses today. Fifteen percent of those patients were illiterate. Hmm. The illiteracy rate here is pretty high. Yeah, so can't can't assume that that people are on that grade level to read the read the note. Right. Yeah, that's And I true. took, I took Medicaid. So, um, and I worked for myself because I'm allergic to perfume. So the patients couldn't wear perfume. The staff couldn't wear perfume. Uh, nobody could wear perfume, but uh, anyway, then, and then she got into school a little bit longer and she came, she said, you know, mom, I think there's some things I could do, you know, that might help your patients. So it started really insidiously. I, I think the first thing we did was uh, Magnolovers, which is, uh, you know, a magnesium with taurine. That's just amazing stuff, you know? Uh, Yeah, both of those nutrients are really great. yeah. So, uh, and then uh, she graduated, she did a residency, dot, dot, dot. And then she's like, why don't you start a residency for naturopaths. They need postdoc training. So I started a residency for uh, naturopaths, which was completely 100% self-funded. I just paid them. I guess that's what you're doing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think it's the only rheum naturopathic rheumatology residency there ever was in the world. So, um, Uh, and I had some really, really wonderful residents. And uh, uh, so, and one of my residents turned me on to the, to IFM and the functional medicine thing. And I went through, all, I went through all the courses and um, I had, their immunology was at that time incredibly weak. 
It's okay. We can say that it's, it can, it can, things can always improve and, and I'm sure they have. So, right. Yeah. I'm sure they have. So I, I wrote them a letter and I went through a one hour lecture and sent them a 10, 20 page typed letter with citations about what was wrong with that one hour lecture. I said, you can't do this and give people certification. But anyway, they, I did talk for them at one of their annual conferences. I edited one of their textbooks on immunology and I wrote a chapter in it as well. And I, I'm not, I didn't get the polite gene, you know? So- Well, you're, I, you're being the change, right? That's the Gandhi quote, right? You're, you're being the change. You're seeing something, you're pointing that out. Right. So I, uh, what was that leading to? Uh, Well, it really I, sounds I like a, I decided not to do the, I decided not to take the exam because so many of the people that were in my little corner of the field, uh, I wouldn't know how to answer the questions. So I decided not to do it and I just kind of pulled back and, uh, but I, I did learn a lot and I, I learned some truly transformative things at IFM. Yeah, it's definitely been a great education. And, and we have a lot of uh, practitioners here who have gone through a lot of the training and, and certification even. Uh, just kind of uh, curious about kind of how you got into, well, I mean, I guess that's more of an obvious question, but as a rheumatologist now we're dealing with, you know, across the country and the world, really osteoarthritis. If you could talk about osteoarthritis, that's kind of what our focuses right. for today. Um, for anyone that's not familiar, what is the technical definition of osteoarthritis? And then how does it impact people on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, the impact of osteoarthritis is huge. Our ideas, the concepts of what it is are changing. And um, so we used to think it was just a disease of mechanics. And we thought that it wasn't inflammatory because uh, there were no neutrophils in the synovium or in the, in the synovial fluid or in the synovial membranes. We thought it was just uh, bad biomechanics. So uh, that's not how we think about it anymore. It's much more than that. Um, although certainly bad biomechanics plays a role, uh, but there's lots of things that play a role, uh, obesity, which changes mechanics. And that's a huge problem across the world. Um, uh, inactivity stillness is, turns out to be really bad for you. Uh, overactivity can be bad, um, we don't work people to death anymore in this country, uh, but I'm sure there are countries where people get worked to death. Trauma, uh, particularly as if it crosses a joint or tears a tendon, where you lose the biomechanical integrity. Um, poor nutrition. I mean, this is, uh, you know, as living organisms, we have to put in the things that help us rebuild our bodies because we're always tearing it down. For instance, bone turns over completely every 10 years. You know, it's not just your hair grows and you cut it off. Your skin turns over every month. 
your bones every 10 years. So if you don't nourish those cells so they can eat while you're uh, sitting still, uh, your joints aren't going to last. So, so our osteoarthritis has a degenerative joint disease. And, and I think what you said about how it's really a disease of inflammation is really timely because I remember also learning in medical school, yeah, it's bone on bone. And, but then when you think about sort of OA osteoarthritis versus rheumatoid arthritis, both of them have at the end of that, you know, suffix of that word itis, which is inflammation. So even in that word, it kind of implies that. Well, that, I think the word is just inaccurate. Uh, I, I think the word is well, it, it, there there are many inflammatory components to it, but they didn't know that back when they called it itis. Mm -hmm, there's, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's many many misnomers in medical nomenclature. Uh, how does so? How does inflammation exactly play a role in the development and progression of osteoarthritis? Uh, it does it through adipokines and cytokines and things like that. So, similar to uh, like another rheumatic disease, polymyalgia rheumatica the the inflammatory cells come they degranulate and they leave so now you know only recently have we started looking at the cytokine profiles in those tissues uh and figuring out what roles to play and and mast cells also you know mast cells are resident cells and you, you can't test them by doing a blood test and seeing how many bloods how many mast cells are circulating you actually have to biopsy the tissue, stain it with a special stain, and then count. It takes, there's not a lot of places that do, that even look at mast cells. Mm -hmm. So, but they're, they're like little bombs. They, they're just full of cytokines. They cause allergy and inflammation and the inflammation in a joint doesn't look like the inflammation in say your gut. Um, but mass, a lot of mast cells live in the gut. They can live in the skin and they can cause all kinds of problems. But uh, uh, anyway. It, it, can the mast cells live in the synovial, synovial fluid as well? or I don't think, so. well, you know, I they, they, they may migrate there for sure. They, they may migrate and leave. Um, I... I actually, I know they're implicated somehow in osteoarthritis, and I don't know the, I, I've been ill for uh, almost two years, so um, I'm kind of out of touch with the current research in uh, mast cells and osteoarthritis, but they are implicated. And I don't, and since they're resident cells, they probably take up space there, but you People don't look for them. You have to test them with CD19 stain. Or it's kind of esoteric. Yeah, it's hard to. It's extremely to esoteric. And there's several different uh, camps of mast cell people. I belong to the Afrin Moldering group. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Aiken, um, the Aiken Milner group. And Milner is not Milner. Aiken is actually near me. He's at the U of M. Uh, so he's an hour away, but I'm not in his camp. He's, he's kind of a real allopathic, um, mast cell guy. He wants, he says, if you don't have an elevated tryptase, you don't have mast cell activation disorder. But, you know, if you're, if your tryptase is 7.9, he goes, nope, 
They don't have it. But if you treat them like they do and they get better, what are you going to say? So we yeah, we're, we're we're friends in, with Dr. Afrin, so we're I guess we're more in that camp, I would say. Yeah, yeah, we've we are really in the Afrin camp. Uh, so my daughter and I have both presented there, and uh, yeah, great, Def great, definitely in that camp. And then, what kind of nutritional considerations? You said diet influences inflammation and joint health. Uh, what kind of nutritional considerations would you? I guess, uh, you know, consider for, for someone with osteoarthritis? Um, simply put, eat mostly plants, mostly organic. Um, high on the Kirker bits and, you know, the greens. and Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I live in Michigan and this is, uh, this is meat country. It's, I've, uh, and I think for the first 15 years I was here, I kept telling people, you know, eat plants and, uh, uh, and slowly people started going, you know, I actually feel better when I eat more plants, but it's, it's, a, it's been a hard sell here. Really. When hard you say sell. meats, what about fish or omega-3 pastured, you know, meats and stuff? Yeah, those are, those are all good fish. I mean, you gotta be careful where you, where you get them. Uh, I think the 13th worst environmental disaster was in Michigan in 1973, 74. And it put polybrominated biphenols into the Great Lakes. And so a lot of my patients eat the Great, they fish on the Great Lakes and they eat the Great Lakes fish. And it's like, I don't know. So, so all of the lakes have PCBs or? PBBs, polybrominated. PBBs, okay. Yeah, polybrominated biphenol. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Yeah, it's a hideous story absolutely hideous story of how it happened and it was partially due to illiteracy of the people that worked in the chemical chemical factory but anyway uh so i don't recommend eating the fish around here and um but and you got to be careful with sand salmon that has uh you know mercury in it and uh, i i don't yeah. know hard to know what to eat now, you know, with all the toxins in a it way. Is. Yeah. It, it is hard to know what to eat. And, uh, you can, uh, but you know, when I was a kid, we had a farm, a kind of a hobby farm and we had a big garden, two acres of garden that was right next to the gravel road getting in. And once a year we poured used mortar, motor oil on the road. And then we ate the vegetables right next to it. Hmm seemed i mean yeah not a good idea yeah hindsight is 2020 i guess on that yeah definitely recommend organic as well um and and definitely um i mean it sounds like there's a lot of different root causes you mentioned a few things being sedentary or moving too too much where maybe there's maybe there's some overuse would that be sort of an accurate statement on that yeah overuse overuse and just i mean who's got perfect biomechanics i mean you know, okay. even running, you know, a marathon is probably not a real smart idea because uh, I've i never looked at how marathoners age, but I, I do know a lot of marathon runners. Uh, apologies for, for the, the people that we know that do run a lot of marathons. But I think at some point, you know, there are some people that are more susceptible to that. Maybe there's some ongoing inflammation in, in those people, but definitely have seen some people where they need like hip replacements or knee replacements. And right, right with that. The other thing that, you know, we 
like to talk about too is because if osteoarthritis has some degree of you know inflammation and cytokines and you know adipokines and things that are affecting the pathogenesis of osteoarthritis. Um, but then also we know that from studies that taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, even though they may increase the person's um, pain relief and reduce the you know pain, mm-hmm. um, I believe we know that that also can accelerate the development of degenerative joint disease, right? If if people are taking long-term NSAIDs. Yeah, uh, to be honest, I did, didn't. I hardly used NSAIDs. Yeah, and I think yeah. a lot of rheumatologists are in that camp. I mean, how many GI bleeds do you want to see, for instance? They're in the camp of of using the NSAIDs or not Not using NSAIDs, okay. At least where I trained and and how I practiced, I just, you know, I do topical Voltaren. People could get stuff over the counter. uh, And then Celebrex and Bextra, I even forget the name of it, Bextra and... uh, yeah, there were those those um, Biox, the COX two inhibitors, increased heart heart attack risk and things like right. that. Yeah, the only reason, cel- I guess I shouldn't use names. Celecoxib is still on the market because it isn't a very good COX two inhibitor. It's a little safer. Hmm. Oh, I mean, I think um, just anecdotally, I do see less people taking that long term, um, but. There are still people taking it, you know, over the counter, you know, sometimes right. it can be more of a long-term thing, sort of yeah. even unintentionally if it's sort of over the counter and needing needing right. some pain relief. But I'm I'm glad to hear that, you know, maybe that's not as prevalent now. Um, I don't know. And- I'm I'm kind of an outlier, I think, especially now since uh, you know, medicine's gotten so politicized and so divided. And well, you're practicing functional medicine, you know, so we hope to make more mainstream and more, more accessible, more common. Um, yeah. What, what about other nutritional supplements or herbs, anything like that, that you have been using uh, in your luteolin and quercetin. Okay. And uh, a a lot of uh, magnesium. Um, we tell people to try glucosamine or glucosamine with chondroitin and they take it for three months or six months. And if it doesn't work, don't waste your money. Uh, the problem is a lot of that data just isn't very good. You know, you do a trial for six weeks. That's a ridiculous length of trial to do in osteoarthritis, which is a disease that progresses. So uh, my daughter's been using geniculate, uh, geniculate blocks for NeoA. And um, they do that in the pain. She, she's actually a clinician in the pain center at OHSU. Okay. And... She says the genetic, you know, some patients just won't walk because their NEOA is so bad. And these geniculate blocks take the pain away. They'll walk again. And once you start walking, the cartilage only gets hydrated and nourished if you walk. Because it's, you know, it's a little sponge in there. You got to apply that pressure. So if you're not applying the pressure, then you don't get the you don't get the perfusion of nutrients into the cartilage. And that's it does it's you know it's vascular in a very small part around the rim. And so you have to you have to push it in. And she has she had a patient that was ready to, to go to a nursing home. They did a geniculate box. She walked again. So wow. you know Huge. it's one patient, but they ought to, you know, I don't know if you do geniculate blocks, but they can't mm-hmm. 
No, is it common? I I don't know that um that familiar with that. I don't know. I don't know how common it is. But she's found it incredibly helpful. That that's great. And then like you said, that's a huge point too. The movement is huge to stimulate the the vascular system yeah. and the, the cartilage. That that's that's another huge point too. Yeah. Uh, let's see if I've I've gone through kind of the questions. Yeah. Um, I think okay. manual therapies would be another. You know, what is the role of physical therapy, chiropractic care, osteopathic manipulative therapies? I uh, I am not terribly fond of manipulation alone as a therapy. I think in conjunction with movement, and this is coming from my dancer part, right? That movement moving should be healing, that it, you can learn to move in a way that nourishes you. That said, I can tell you that's hard. That's really hard. I happen to have done a lot of work before I went to medical school in um, movement analysis, all kinds of movement analysis from a dancer's standpoint and an expression and um, that you, you know, like just as you look at me, this shoulder is kind of funny, right? I mean, and it moves weird. I mean, it was moved really different than my other shoulder, right? Um, this has been pretty massively operated on, so uh, I fell and tore it apart and the tendons okay. started popping off, but, but I've learned to, I've, I've learned to move it again. And I mean, it just had a horrible trauma to it. So, um, and then uh, there's some other underlying things that, that go into causing osteoarthritis and, and a big one, uh, is hypermobility joint hypermobility, because those joints, they just, they just don't stay in the, exactly, they kind of sublux, maybe not dislocate, but they slide on parts of the rims of things that where they shouldn't be. And then those rims wear out. I, I tell all my patients, go 70% of where you can go. Okay. That's, that's really don't, good advice. Don't explore the edges. And as a ballet dancer and as a gymnast, you spend your days exploring the edges of where you can go. That that's where the injuries happen more at the edges, yeah. right? Yeah. And 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 then tying it back to osteoarthritis, you know, we see that you know that this the culture is often very competitive. Like, okay, if we can run a ten minute mile, now we want to run a nine minute mile. We want to run an eight minute right. mile. I want to beat this other person. You know, I want to place a little higher. Um, and and this is something that the mindset shift mind mindset shift is required to really, you know, protect the joints and, um, and, right. you know, in addition to hopefully enjoying the sport yeah. of choice better, yeah. um, you, can over, of... you can override it with the pleasure of winning of how you would do it. If you have that goal to win, you know, mm -hmm. you can override your body sense. And... So I think what you're saying is that, um, short-term gains may lead to long-term pains. Is that sort of potential yeah. thing if someone is yeah. trying to compete all the time and overusing yeah. the body yeah um what about acupuncture have you had experience uh either referring or personally with with acupuncture and and my maybe my body techniques too like meditation how do they help with pain management with arthritis 
acupuncture is pretty incredible, uh, particularly electroacupuncture. But uh, uh, I think um, I've had a, personally a lot of acupuncture and uh, for a whole variety of reasons, not just actually not for, for the OA, but uh, for other reasons, I've had acupuncture and uh, I'm definitely a fan. I think I don't know. I don't know. I can't talk in detail about the techniques, but I think balancing the meridians and putting wavelengths of electricity in that are conformed is right. I think they're really personally helpful. Um, acupuncture is not licensed in the state of Michigan. Insurance doesn't pay for it. And uh, so it's really for rich people, which is really, really unfortunate. And I, I never learned acupuncture, so. Uh. Yeah, acupuncture licensing, I think, varies quite a bit from state to state. And there's certain states where where doctors can be acupuncturists, there's other states where only acupuncturists that have gone to acupuncture school can be acupuncturists. It's kind of an interesting yes. landscape there. Um, I, I do have a little bit of um, medical acupuncture training in, in Maryland here. Um, it's sort of a a mixed kind of field where we can work together in our clinic. We work together. We have licensed acupuncturists yeah. and who do most of our, you know, acupuncture, but I agree. It's really great. And there's a study by Dr. Berman here in Maryland. that talks about um, knee osteoarthritis and how acupuncture is effective for that. I think that was back in the early two thousands. Yeah. We did that study. That's a pretty well-known one. Um, well, I know osteoarthritis really, it, it seems like just to recap, there's, there's a bunch of, you know, points here, but um, going into testing, I do want to talk a little bit about testing in terms of functional medicine. I, I don't think we can get away from the functional medicine topic without talking about testing. Do you think about testing for people with OA? Um, do you do testing like functional testing or what What kind of lab analyses or other analyses are you looking at for people with OA? I'm going to back up because we skipped over something that I think is really important. And let's that, not skip it. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's not skip it long before testing history. So getting a history, that to me, that was, you know, going through medical school and residency and fellowship uh, were, I just didn't get the whole hit. I mean, we got the history of the presenting illness and the things that led up to it. And then, you know, dot, dot, dot. But the functional medicine history is just so so important, you know, and it gives you, um, so I, I mean, you're all functional medicine people. So did your parents love each other? Did you have enough to eat when you were a kid? You know, was there violence in your home? That's huge. Um, yeah, it's huge. You know, these things are huge. And so when you look at somebody who's had the kind of traumas that like, like how much, you know, how am I going to organize this? So for me, as a rheumatologist, history and physical have been, you know, a whole lot of it. But once I met the functional medicine history, it's like, this is so important, the functional medicine history. Uh, and then and the next thing, of course, is physical exam. So when somebody comes in with a sore knee, you don't look at their knee and send them home. Um, I, un I had all my patients undress and I would say just strip to what you would wear to the beach. 
and I'd watch him do it. I didn't have the MA give him a gown, go in a room. I would say it's part of the physical exam. You learn a lot watching people dress and undress, you know? Oh, that's nice. That's nice. You, you're actually watching them undress and you can actually see how they do that. And that can tell you about oh, yeah. their Like their how they take their shoes and... off. Oh, yeah, seriously, yeah. you got to weigh in your left hip. Uh, I mean, I, I had half more than half the diagnosis done watching them undress. That's really, yeah, it's because it's a functional movement. And I had a long hallway in my office. So I'd walk them up and up and down the hall. I'd walk behind them. I'd walk beside them. And I go, oh, a little varus in that knee. You know, that's not hitting on the right places. Or um, So there's history, observation, and then the physical exam. So I think one of the things, even in, in DO school, we never learned to do a comprehensive joint exam which is mind boggling. That's to me. so surprising, especially in DO school. Wow. Yeah. It's very surprising, but I have, uh, I had a patient who became, uh, a, a co-presenter with me. She's a internist and she, uh, uh, and she rotated, she rotated with me long after she'd become an internist. And we did some videos together and gave some talks and she, uh, I taught her how to examine a knee to see if it was hot. And uh, she was teaching OMM at Michigan State. She had no idea. Ah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. She had no idea. So I'm I'm going to demonstrate it on my elbow. You have a knee and you run your the in the volar part of your wrist up the shin and onto the top of the thigh like this. If the knee is the same temperature as the shin, it's hot. And there may be more than osteoarthritis in that knee. If the knee is the same temperature, you're saying the knee should be a colder temperature? Colder. The knee should be cold. The elbow should be cold. The shoulders should be cold. I mean, but yeah, those big hips aren't because they typically have a lot of fat on them and you're pretty far from the joint when you're over. <laughs> I'll have to check out my own joint now after this, uh, after no, this it's, call it's, here. Yeah, it's really easy. I mean, I think I can get my leg up high enough. Yeah, you just, uh, I'll do it with this one. You go up the shin onto okay. the, my knee is much colder. See that? You just go Yeah, my, my, my knee seems colder. So I think at least for right now, if I probably hopefully don't have osteoarthritis. So <laughs> yeah, you don't. And you can get all kinds of other complications. You can get calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease uh, in an OA knee. And uh, and that'll be hot. And that's, it, 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 again, if it's the same temperature, it's hot. Mm-hmm. And that's low, good. That's low good. grade inflammatory things. Um, so I didn't want to miss that. That's good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about imaging. So one uh I I wasn't heavy on imaging. I didn't, uh, unlike many of my colleagues in this town who x-ray every joint every year because they have their own x-ray machines, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do that uh, because I don't think you learn that much. Um, although uh, I, they can definitely be helpful, but I... Unless people really push, like, do you think I need an X-ray? I, uh, I get X-rays, but it's I don't. You don't need to go to that 
immediately if it's mild and you're not suspecting, you know, a bone malignancy or, uh, you know, calcium pyrophosphate deposition disease or some some other benign tumor in the bone or. And, and um, you can get a lot from the history and physical, it sounds like. You can get a lot. You can get a lot from history and physical. Um, um, and and sometimes the the uh, the X-rays aren't even that helpful. Like you you may have a patient with bone on bone uh, in both compartments, and a varus deformity and a little limp, and they go, you know, I don't have that much pain. Well, that's a really bad knee. I I think you do your disservice. To your patients tell them they got a really bad knee when they're living with it perfectly well. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be bad. I mean, that's actually one of my board questions almost every year. Patient has bone on bone, bicompartmental knee OA. What do you do? And they give you options like physical therapy, knee replacement, and whatever. And it, you know, the answer is, you know, PT at the most. You don't replace a joint just because it looks ugly. If they're functional, if they're functioning right, functioning okay. If they're then. functioning well, there's not an advantage because, as you know, joint replacements fail. Yeah, there can be side effects, or they're not they're not working as well as they would like. Always. Yeah. Um, yeah. When do you when do you decide? Yeah, when that that's probably something to talk about. When when do you decide for your patient with osteoarthritis? Hey. We've tried all these things. When would you recommend joint replacement? You know, it's interesting. I'll just give you a little example. I have a patient, I think he's 92 now. Uh, he has a little, al he, he had a little alpaca farm, some big dogs and retired math professor. And he, uh, he had bone on bone on both his knees and he had trouble getting out of a chair and he was getting older and he thought, you know, I, you know, I'd like to be more active. And uh, so I said, well, you know, they take a saw and cut off the bones and put diseases there and you got a recovery period. He, I, I said, you know, he goes, well, I just my activity level's gone down so much. And I, so I sent him to the surgeon uh, and he's, uh, he looked at it and looked at the recovery and he said, you know, how long am I going to live? And, you know, I don't need to run around the farm anymore. And he opted for a more sedentary lifestyle than a knee replacement. And that was probably a wise choice. I had another patient who had a lot of trouble walking. He had a bad knee and he kind of suddenly had this really horrible problem walking on the leg with the bad knee. And he didn't, I think his primary care sent him to the orthopedic surgeon. They replaced the knee. And then he came to me and he goes, this knee replacement's a disaster. I can't get off the walker. I can't walk. And I looked at him walking and I said, oh, you snapped your vastus lateralis right off the trochanter. Ooh. And that that gives that gives a what do you call Trendelenburg gate, right? Do yeah. You know what that is? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if I can demonstrate it here, but yeah, it gives you a Trendelenburg gate. And he came in in his walker with a Trendelenburg gate, and I said, "You didn't need a knee replacement." 
Now, reattaching the vastus lateralis to the greater trochanter is also fraught with problems. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, why, why didn't he need a knee replacement? Because it was not a knee issue, it was something else. Yeah, it was his hip. He mm, couldn't mm. walk because he ripped his... Oh, because of that. Yeah. Mm. He goes, look, I still can't walk. It wasn't okay. the hip, it was the hip. Was something else. And that was yeah. an orthopedic surgeon, and they train orthopedic surgeons to at least examine the joint above and below. But this guy didn't look at the joint above. That seems rare. Like, I haven't really seen that kind of case before. Uh, hopefully, it's rare. I've, I think in... I think I've seen it three times. I think it is pretty rare. But you at least have to look at the joint above and the joint below. Mm -hmm. at least. Definitely. No, that's a good... It's all connected, right? The bones, the all the joints, the fascia. Yeah. Um, Carla, thank you so much for, for coming on today. Uh, I think we want to talk about uh, just kind of in closing, because we, we covered quite a bit of things today. Um, including South Indian dance. So we appreciate you uh, talking some about that. What is one thing you wish everyone knew about taking a root cause approach to osteoarthritis? Like kind of like a take home, you know, take home point for them. Uh, if you don't look at the root cause, you're going to be a orthopedic surgeon. You're going to think you can just fix stuff. I mean, you have to, you really have to look at the whole person. You have to look at the whole person. And, and it sounds like the biomechanics is a big part of it, because if even a slight deviation of what would be considered optimal, it might over years yeah. be um, contributing to, yeah. to, biomechanics, to that. Biomechanics is huge. Another one of my loathed um, movement uh, techniques is, is yoga. And I, I think that's really dangerous because you're just going too far. Um, the... Uh, I, there's a ton of literature on Tai Chi in terms of longevity of what helps. And there's a relatively new technique called gyrotonic that I think is really wonderful. It's not too, you know, it's not like going to the gym. It's not two dimensional repetitive, but gyrotonic is a pretty amazing technique. And uh, Tai Chi, those are the that's what has the most literature for movement techniques. Cause you know, doing these studies, you don't make any money out of figuring out what technique is better than any other. Right. And you don't do it long enough. And then you don't do the follow-up long enough to see what people could integrate into their lives. And what's a blip of, you know, six weeks or eight months or even a year in a lifetime, it's not much. So you have to give these people alternatives for something they can incorporate into their lives pretty frequently so well I, I think it's the same with you know running ballet gymnastics yoga tai chi i mean in, anything could be you know taken to the extreme or and the extreme is probably relatively extreme for a different person so having that person's health and their body taken into account in an individual way is right. probably going to be safer like i know we can think about um you know people that take Tai Chi classes or, you know, instruction, you know, yoga therapy, you know, it's probably different ways to, 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 yeah. you know, make it safer for people. So I, yeah, I yoga, agree. There I are some very good, there are some very good yoga therapy things. I shouldn't have uh, been so harsh on yoga. 
But well, no, I mean, I think anything has the potential for injury for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah but, anything. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so there were just two other things. One was just a little comment about ultrasound. I don't know if you do ultrasound in your clinic. Uh, um, not currently, but yes, let's talk about ultrasound. Yeah, I, you know, you really overdiagnose stuff. And if you're doing ultrasound guided, whatever, it isn't going to show to the cartilage. So the orthopedic surgeons will say, you know, you do these ultrasound guided injections of the knee, uh, either with steroids or visco supplementation, and you just pick the cartilage apart. So so you're not a fan of hyaluronic acid or, or steroid oh God, injections no. or anything like that? No. Nope. Because it know. actually damages the cartilage when right, you go the in. Needle. Yeah. The needle itself, even though and and there's no there's no good evidence that it works. There might be a subset of it. Uh, there might be a subset of patients in which it works, but you know, apotherapy maybe is good. Mm, okay. Okay. Well, so. Yeah. A, a, can we just clarify for the, the listeners, apotherapy, what, what do you mean by apotherapy? These stings. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> just, a, a, like actually just getting stung by a bee or actually apotherapy? No, you actually you... put the bee on the knee. Okay. No. There's actually some literature for that. And there's also some literature for leeches. We, we just met a beekeeper at a farm. So we'll have to ask, ask her um, or him about that. Um, ask him about that. I think I think the other question I have now that we're talking about injections is what is your role, uh, view of uh, going to get into the regenerative question here, PRP, stem cells, exosomes. Is there any role of that for any of those things for, for OA? You know, I've, I've done a fair amount of it and I've had it done to myself. Uh, and after, I, I don't know how long I did it, Year, couple of years. And I, I don't, I, I think maybe there's a better way. I, I don't know. I bought a very expensive machine and I used it a fair amount. And I didn't see enough change that made me want to keep doing it. And, so, and yeah. steroids, uh, steroids are pretty overused. I've uh, steroids are overused in osteoarthritis, and you have to be careful with them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and again, a lot of side effects. A lot of side effects. Yeah, and they're and again, you're picking the cartilage apart to put it in. So, if there is one thing that you could really say, and maybe there's more than one thing, but let's just say, you know, one, one, what your top, you know, favorite thing you would think about for, for osteoarthritis, what, what would that be in terms of uh, treatment, you know? Eat well, move well. Love it. Simple and, uh, and, and really good. Thank you. Well, thank you, Dr. Guggenheim for coming on today. Um, Carla, part of our mission at CIH here is to make integrative healthcare more accessible and focusing on the small steps that we can take to improve our health. So we'd love to hear from you personally. What is one thing under $20 that you feel has transformed your own health? Walking. It also doesn't have to cost money. So it that's, uh, you know, we're, we're not talking about five below. Okay, walking. Uh, walking. In a pair walking. of flat shoes with a wide toe box. Okay, I think we can talk about brands. Do you have a specific brand there that you like or? Um, I, um, oh 
oh god what are my latest shoes uh it's not the a6 i have quite a few shoes flat meaning rubberized rubberized is fine yeah, like the cushiony sneakers sneakers okay, okay. with a little bit of a rocker mm -hmm. and, yeah, yeah um uh you know, it should fit your foot really well. It should be comfortable when you put it on and walk for five minutes in the shoe store. Okay. And you should never wear high heels or pointed toe shoes. Those disrupt the biomechanics of the gait massively. So don't wear them at cocktail parties, no ballet shoes, nothing like no that. Point, no point shoes. Okay. No, no pointy toe, high heeled show, shoes, no things. I mean, look at the shape of your foot and buy a shoe that fits it. Like I've got a whole bunch of OA in my foot and, you know, it's, it's a really wide foot. It's got all kinds of orthopedic problems, but I, I have to buy a shoe that I can put my foot on top of the shoe and I can see the shoe all the way around my foot. It makes common sense to not not shove a shoe into someone's foot that that doesn't fit. But I guess there's, you know, people have stylistic concerns and, you know, different things. But yeah, it, it's not good for the oh, biomechanics, though, it sounds like it's at all. horrible. I actually that was my research in biomechanics was the biomechanics of point shoes. And yeah, those, those are terrible, but high heeled shoes are equally as bad and people wear them for a lot longer. You know, ballet dancers don't wear them that long in a day. They do super stupid things with them, like standing on the tips of the toes. But, but even walking around all day on, in high heeled shoes is mm -hmm. lunacy. And pointy shoes plus a combination of that and alcohol is probably not a good idea either. Oh, alcohol is never a good idea. It's poison. But in terms of the uh, the balance of you know people falling after. Oh right, you I know, mean things and. Yeah. And it's true about OA in general. I mean, a lot of people die of falling. Mm -hmm. Older people die of falling. So, so you combine that with bad biomechanics, you fall more. If you combine it with bad biomechanics and and non-ergonomic shoes, you're going to fall more. And then if you add the alcohol, you know. <laughs> okay, so no alcohol, eat well, move well, don't wear pointy shoes, reduce inflammation, and listen to Dr. Carla here. So thank you so much. <laughs> for coming on today. Um, send some gratitude to you for, for coming you know, today on this call. Um, it's really been a pleasure and uh, we really um, are really appreciative. I know the listeners are really appreciative of your wisdom, you know, talking about arthritis and, and your life and uh, just, just want to wish you well. Thank you so much. It's really, I've really looked forward to this. This was really, a really nice, uh, uh, nice for me to be able to do this. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Carla. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today for this episode of the Capital Integrative Health Podcast. A quick reminder that the information we share in this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. We highly recommend that you speak to a qualified healthcare provider before making any medical or healthcare decisions. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a few moments to subscribe and leave us a review. Your reviews help us reach more people and continue to offer innovative insights and information to better optimize your health and wellness.